Well, before I say anything else, I'm just going to say, you need to be wearing black if you want to be a pastor in this church. I hope you picked that up. I mean, Jamie and I are in the spirit. We're matching tonight, looking really, really, well, I think I'm looking good. I think he's looking good. I hope you agree. Um, But it is definitely a special moment to be sharing tonight. And there's a few things I want to say even before we get into the message. But uh, we do have a, a special couple here. There's actually a lot of special people here. Um, very good to see you tonight, Pums, as well. It's been a long time. Pums was one of the founding members of this church. Really nice to see you here tonight. Um, but tonight we've also got Peter and Sandy Watt with us, who probably are unfamiliar to most of you in this church, but really heroes in the city and just people who love Jesus and have served him wonderfully. And they lead 3C Church in Westville. Um, just off Essex Terrace there, if you're on the freeway, you'll drive past, you'll see the Master's Builder, Master Builder, Builders Building, bit of a tongue twister, but if you get it right, it's easy, uh, that's where their community meets on Sundays, and we went there this morning, Shell and I with August, Pascal and Kirsty, and it was Jamie and Lisa's last Sunday as part of that church, after four years being part of that community, 3C prayed for them and honored them and sent them to us to lead Harbor City going forward into the future. I realize if you're new to this church now or last week or recently, there's a lot going on which might be hard to take in, but this was a special moment this morning, just watching a community of people send a couple, send a family, because Ruby and Summer are part of that. They are being sent to join Harbor City and play a role in what God is wanting to do in this community into the future. And it was a really beautiful morning. And I want to say as much as Harbor City, you are sending Shell, August, and I to San Diego to Restored Uptown for what we believe God is doing, it was wonderful to see 3C send an amazing family to join this church for the purposes that God has for you guys and Harbor City into the future. It was a very, very special morning and a very beautiful church. And we normally would have had them here next week to be part of the handover service and maybe say a few words and pray and just celebrate with us. We've got some friends, like Jamie said, coming from San Diego, from Tunisia, from Middleburg, from Kloof and around Durban. We've got some friends coming from all over to celebrate and be part of what God is doing next weekend. But Peter and Sandy can't actually join us and be with us next Sunday, just sadly. But I think kind of just in God's um, purposes or whatever, it's almost better to have them here this week because they have gotten to know Jamie and Lise and their family really well over the last four years. And in a sense, they're gonna come up now and tell you a little bit about them. And they, I mean, they freshly loved them and sent them out for our sake, for our benefit and obedience to God. So as they come up, Harbor City, can we give them a warm, loving, appreciative welcome as they come to say hi? Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here. Um, We normally say good morning in our church, so it is a bit of a a strange thing, but um, this is a very special place for us because our kids um, were both at We Friends uh, Preschool here, and our son was at DPHS, so we know Gordon Road, we know this area, and we know this this particular venue because of the annual nativity play which took uh, took place here. Um, And in fact, the reason why we can't be here next weekend is because we're taking them both up to Pretoria, to, uh, for tertiary, so you can understand that it was some years ago, 
Uh, and as much as I, I regard uh, Grant and Michelle and Jamie and Lisa as sort of peers and contemporaries, um, they obviously were late starters. We were just early starters. And um, I, I got the black right. I just didn't get the T-shirt right. But uh, Jamie and Lisa have been with us for four years, as, as Grant mentioned. And um, I would just like to say a few words. I do not believe for one moment that I'm overstating anything. Uh, it was very easy to come up with a list. I've got seven words. And I'm just going to say one or two sentences uh, on each of those words uh, to describe who I believe Jamie and Lisa are. So um, if you would just bear with me. So first of all, integrity. Uh, this is an honest couple. Not for one moment do I ever think that there's a crooked line in them or that what they're saying externally is not what's going on inside of them. Uh, they will not uh, change what they say. Uh, just to please, they are, they are people of integrity and what you, what you hear and what you see is the honest truth about who they are. We have been quite overwhelmed by their humility. Uh, they came in having been elders in a church, I think, for 13 years at Red Point, a large church. We're not a large church. And uh, they came in with absolute humility, with respect, and with a willingness to change and repent, not because we had to confront them, but just we knew that God was working in their lives. And uh, they showed utter respect towards us as their leaders, even though they could have easily come in and said, well, we were elders, and what about this, what about that? They have been incredibly faithful. Uh, one of the challenges we have in our church, I'm no doubt this is no issue and you don't know what I'm talking about, is we don't, we have quite inconsistent attendance. It's obviously a Westful thing. It's the other side of 45th cutting. And Jamie and Lisa, if they were ever to miss a Sunday, they will let us know that they're going away or whatever. Not to ask permission, but they've been incredibly faithful um, and steadfast in their attendance. Uh, they're a very capable couple, very gifted and intelligent and uh, you're going to benefit from that. They are a determined couple, single-minded and unwavering, not to try and get their own way, but, but like a laser-like focus to do whatever God has called them to do. And uh, I think there have been a number of other options available to them, but they have been laser-like in their focus and determination to do only what God has required of them. They ha are learners one of, the reason that, one of the reasons Jamie is such a good teacher of the Word, and Lisa, I've no doubt, a good teacher, is because they are learners. And uh, a teacher must be a learner first. Um, and they are incisive. This is word number seven. They are incisive. They are able to see into. They are strategic. Um, they are thinkers. And they are thinkers, and they are insightful around a range of topics, not just the Scriptures or church, but on culture, on politics, uh, I even once, once watched a rugby match with Jamie, and he's, and he's even got opinions there. I didn't agree with them all, but anyway. So very incisive and strategic in the way that they think. And I just asked God for a scripture that would perhaps encapsulate what I feel about them. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to show yourself approved by God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And I believe that summarizes who they are. Um, and it says, to show yourself approved by God. And I think Jamie and Lisa, having stepped off full-time eldership at a large church, they, they've had an audience of one. And they have been diligent to show themselves approved by God. 
first and foremost. They have not been showy, they have not tried to push themselves forward, but they have been diligent to show themselves approved by God. And Jamie has been studying theology uh, in amongst being a father uh, and a husband and an entrepreneur and, and Lisa being a, a teacher and a mother. And uh, they, I have no doubt that they have been diligent to show themselves approved by God, accurately handing the word of truth. And I, you are going to benefit hugely from the teaching gift. As people shared this morning about their departure, that was one of the repeated themes that came through, is Lisa's incredible ability to lead worship and Jamie's wonderful ability to teach the word. So we are sad to see them go. The, one of the best things that was said this morning is if we sow, we're going to reap. And we trust that because we're sowing a good quality couple, we are going to reap a whole lot of good quality couples. Not sure exactly where they're going to come from, maybe part time, but uh, we, we really do. We sow them with sadness because they have been incredible in our community for the last four years, but we sow them with excitement. We do not believe that we are being diminished. I believe that we are being enlarged, and the church, the body of Christ in Durban, is being enlarged and strengthened by this significant move and hand over. So, sense. Hi. Um, so I actually just wanted to share what I'd brought this morning. So sorry for those who were there. Just, um, the word I had for them was from Isaiah 30. So it's a big long thing with lots of uh, stuff happening and teeth gnashing and whatnot. But it's the, the part of it that, uh, well, the reason I went to that scripture was it's, it's about hearing God. There's lots of stuff happening, but it's about hearing God. And I really feel that uh, Jamie and Lisa hear God. They, so it's, it's about whispering my left and whispering my right, and do I go left or do, do I go right? So I just feel like, I mean, firstly, you've landed with your bum in the butter, because to, to get Jamie and Lisa as, as your pastors is phenomenal. Um, but you can trust them because they hear God, you know? They really intentionally see God and they listen, do I go left, do I go right? So you can trust them wherever they're going to lead you that they are hearing from God and um, they will lead you we, you as a, a family, needs to be. Um, yeah, I think that's what I wanted to say. Yeah. So we, we, we commend them to you. Uh, we look forward to hearing about your journey as a community. And um, well done on, on a good choice of who is going to uh, succeed you. So with, with all our blessings from 3C. Quite a commendation, hey? Just incredible words from you guys. Um, and I just said to them this morning, I think what makes sense in most churches is if we're trying to build a church for ourselves, if they want 3C to be a big, juicy church, you're not going to let people go, you know? Them blessing and sending Jamie and Lise, just saying we believe in a bigger story, a kingdom story. We're partnering together for the gospel in the city, not just what we're doing in one place. I think it's the most Christ-like and beautiful thing. In your words, I think, to me, I feel so encouraged by. I'm sure most of you feel the same. But it is a privilege to be preaching again today. Um, 
And as Jamie said, tonight is my last sermon as the leader of this community. Next week at the handover service, I'm sure I'll say a few things. I'm sure in months or a year to come, I'll be back here visiting, getting to preach, if you, know, you guys will have me or whatever. But I think I just wanted to say what a privilege it's been um, to be the pastor of Harbor City over the last eight and a half years, to have had incredible access to your lives and just trust from you to lead, to pastor, to preach, to be in your homes, some of you inviting me to counsel you in hard moments, tender moments, significant moments, just having the privilege um, weekly to pray for you and spend time studying the scriptures to stand up like this, to teach you and point you to Jesus and disciple you and help you to know and love and enjoy him more and more and more has been the most incredible gift. So thank you for having me and Shell and now August um, as a family in this church, but allowing me to be the pastor of this community. And I realized tonight, even as this is my last sermon for now, I've probably preached over 250 sermons in this church in the last eight or so years, which is quite a lot. So it's probably a good thing that you've got someone else doing the majority of the teaching going forward. But I trust that God has used me in your lives to help you to know and love and enjoy and follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. And I trust that there will just be fruit that comes from that in the years to come. Last week, I started a kind of short two-part mini-series on my final encouragements and prayer for you guys as a church. And if you missed it, I'd really encourage you to listen to part one, because they're both from 1 Thessalonians 3. And when I was asking God what to do for last week and tonight, I said um, I'd read a book on Paul's prayers for the churches um, and just written down each of those passages and started to pray those for you, mainly over lockdown, just the different prayers that Paul prayed for the churches that he led and planted and cared for, I prayed for you. And this one in particular stood out to me for you, Harbor City. It's from 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11 to 13. And it says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. I love that. Love for everyone in the church, but also love for everyone outside of the church. Just as we do for you. And may he make your hearts blameless in holiness. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. And last week I spoke about that first attribute, um, that I'm praying that you would be a church of love. Tonight I want to speak about the second attribute, that we would be a holy church, that Harbor City would be a holy church. And that is the different translations say that God would make or strengthen or establish our hearts as blameless in holiness, which I think is just some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. So preparing for tonight, I googled the word holy, you know, just to know what people think about holiness out there. What do you think came up on the front page, Google page one? No one, you just feel like two on the spot. Holy socks. I was thinking holy underpants, but yeah, your mind is probably more sanctified than me, so that's good. Anyone else? There was a definition of holiness that came up first. 
followed by Justin Bieber's hit song, Holy, featuring Chance the Rapper. It was the YouTube uh, version which popped up, and then after that was Spotify and every other kind of platform you can imagine. Justin Bieber is leading the charge on holiness uh, on the internet, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. You can make your own decisions. But that's what popped up first, followed by a bunch of probably really well-known churches with the word holy in their title, and then a lot of Christian content, blogs, podcasts, videos, and then some terrible photos of lights breaking through clouds and doves flying and crosses and arms raised in praise. It was interesting. I don't know if, like, what comes to your mind as I speak about holiness, but that is what comes to Google's mind. That is what the internet thinks of holiness. And I think for myself and just in my experience as a pastor over the years, probably for a lot of people when they hear the word holy, what comes to mind is being perfect, being perfect, which is out there like some unattainable goal, you know? Being perfect's a great idea. We just know that's not something we can do. So even as I say that I'm speaking about holiness today, this topic might seem a little bit irrelevant or unattainable or even guilt-inducing. Like, okay, Grant's gonna speak about being holy and then I'm gonna feel bad because I'm not as holy as I wish I was. Or maybe if you don't think about being perfect, maybe you think about being really, really moral like a really, really good person who does the right thing or the righteous thing all of the time. And I think as a perfectionist myself, who can be really hard on myself about what I do and don't do, I've definitely thought that in the past. And I I probably, in my mind and my heart, do sometimes think that that's what I'm meant to do, is be perfect and be really, really good or moral. Yet at the same time, because I'm a perfectionist, I'm so aware of my failures and shortcomings and mistakes and mess-ups and all of that. And I can relate to Paul at the end of Romans chapter 7, where he says, I do not do what I want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I'm sure some of you feel the same. Like we fail even to live up to our own moral standards, the, the things we hold ourselves to. And even as Christians, me as a pastor, I know that I'm a hypocrite. I know that I don't always do the things that I believe or preach or think I should do. I I fail to live up to my own standards. And I have to remind myself often that my value, my worth before God, my security is not based on what I do. It's based on Jesus and what he's done for me. So tonight as we talk about this, is perfectionism and morality all that comes to mind in the holiness conversation or is there more? As I was preparing, these two quotes came to mind. Sorry if you can put them up. The first is from a guy named Kevin DeYoung, who's quite a gnarly uh, teacher of the Bible, actually quite a gnarly theologian. He says, expecting perfection from ourselves or others is not what holiness is about. And D.A. Carson, I love this, says, when the angels cry, holy, 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 they are not merely crying moral, moral, moral. Holiness is about more than just those things. Remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day? The most moral people out there. You know, they had very high standards of what they did. The, the scriptures said this, and they went even further so that they would stay far away from doing the wrong thing at all and being guilty of sinning. They were very moral. They were very righteous. And when Jesus looks at them, he says, you whitewashed tombs, and uses some even stronger language than that to describe them. Because yes, on the outside, like a whitewashed tomb, they look perfect. They look great. It seems like everything is in order. But on the inside was sin and death and gross things. And God says, you guys are actually really far from me despite your morality and your external righteousness. So what does biblical holiness 
if it has to mean more than just being moral or trying to be perfect. Well, let me start here. Biblical holiness starts with who we already are in Christ, not with who we should be becoming or what we should be doing. In Christ, if you're a Christian here tonight, in Christ, you are holy, not you must become holy. What an amazing place to start in the holiness conversation. In Christ, you are holy, not you must become holy or do more holy things. I find this so interesting. One of the New Testament terms that's used to describe or define Christians is the word saint. Now, I don't know what church tradition you grew up in, if you grew up in the church. I I grew up watching a lot of TV, and watching TV, what I would think of when I heard the word saint is like a really, really Christian person, like super Christian, doing amazing things, you know, serving God, caring for others radically, very moral, maybe some miracles thrown in, and then they were recognized as a saint, Saint Janita, Saint Mike, Saint Tabani, whoever it might be. But what the scriptures say is that all Christians are saints. It's the Greek word hagios, which means holy ones. And in fact, Paul the Apostle writes to a church like ours, and he says to the saints in that church, to the holy ones in Philippi, to the holy ones in Durban, to the holy ones in Harbor City. And I love that. Because notice he doesn't say to the saints and sinners in Morningside. He doesn't say to the saints and those who are trying their best but not doing great in Durban. Because he could say that. The reality is, I'm sure, in all of the churches he wrote to, there were people that were struggling with sin and felt really guilty and were holding on to their faith by like the skin of their teeth. But he doesn't mention that. He says, you are saints, you are holy ones of God, the whole community. And he would say the same to Harbor City today, to the saints in Harbor City. Being a saint, being called a holy one is not about what we have done, but what God has done for us or in us through Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Christ has made us holy and he calls us holy because we have a new identity in him. And you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, we're gonna spend the rest of our lives learning to live into who we already are in him learning to live out this identity, stumbling and falling, going forwards and backwards, two steps forward, one step back. But he calls us holy. He calls us saint even now when we haven't arrived yet. Isn't that incredible news? If you're a Christian, you're a holy one even as you learn to live holy. So how do we live out who we already are? How do we learn to live holy? How do we do this holiness thing? This definition was so helpful to me. It's from the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. Tari, if you can put it up there. It describes holy as this. A biblical term generally meaning to be set apart. The term is used widely in Scripture to refer to a variety of people and objects alike, but ultimately points to God as the one who is qualitatively different or set apart from creation. Holy may also be used to describe someone or something that God has set apart for special purposes. In the New Testament, holiness takes on the sense of ethical purity or freedom from sin. The fullness of the biblical witness then testifies to God's holiness, understood as God's otherness and purity, as well as God's prerogative to set people and things apart for God's own purposes, together with the resulting godliness in the lives of those whom God declares to be holy. Tari, you can leave that up just for a few minutes. 
I read that about 20 times, and there's a lot in there. So if you're going, Grant, I glazed over, I get it. But what I want to highlight to you is that in those four sentences of that definition, the idea of being set apart shows up three times. That's clearly very important to what it means to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart to God and His purpose. Holiness is about living a godly life. It is about doing the right thing. It is about being righteous and being moral and obeying God. But even more than that, holiness is about a life that is set apart to God and His purposes, a life devoted to God, a life of worship, of surrender, as we sung so beautifully, and a life of consecration to God that is a life of worship. That's what holiness is. It's a life that is flowing out of that new identity that we have in Jesus. So what does it mean to be set apart if that's what holiness is? I don't know what you did during lockdown, but I got into some sport documentaries, and I'm not a sport guy. Peter and Jamie clearly are into rugby. I'm not. I haven't watched rugby in 20 years. Um, but there were a few sport documentaries that I really enjoyed. Anyone watch Drive to Survive? <laughs> One, Krista and Luke, thank goodness. That got me into Formula One. I'm now part of a fantasy Formula One league because of Drive to Survive, following all these like Formula One drivers, what goes on behind the scenes. It's incredible. Anyone watch The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls thing? Brit, Tari, okay, we've got a few more. Sheesh, I was worried sick about you guys. Holy smokes. You guys were all praying and reading your Bibles. I was watching series, binging things on Netflix. It tracks the story of Jordan and the 90s Chicago Bulls and their incredible victories. There was a Tiger Woods documentary that came out on HBO. There's a Schumacher one that just came out on Netflix. There's a whole lot of these sporting documentaries that came out. And if you watch any of them, which clearly none of you do, what you will notice is that there's an incredible level of determination and focus that exists in all of those people. To exist at that level, to play, to compete, to try and win at that level, means that you need to give yourself completely to that one sport, to that one thing. Your whole life is reshaped, centered around the sport, the thing that you're competing in. And you see that with these guys. Their lives become about that sport. They are consecrated to that sport. Just think, every part of their lives, their time is changed. They spend their time based on what they need to do. Their schedule is arranged on competing at that level. What time do I need to get up? What time do I need to go to bed? Like, let me put in the blocks of what I need to do so that I could win. What about eating? I'm sure some of you have seen Michael Phelps' diet when he was competing for the Olympics. Ate an incredible amount of calories, terrible food, but it was exactly what he needed to be at that level. Their food was shaped, their diet was shaped, their focus, priorities, energies, thoughts, all that they do and all that they don't do becomes really important because they are set apart for Formula One or basketball or golf or whatever it is. They are set apart for that sport, which means they have to be set apart from so many other things which are gonna distract them from the one thing that they're giving themselves to. I wasn't sure if I should use this example, but what about students? Some of you are thinking, when I was a student, I was not set apart. Like, I goofed around, I failed a few subjects, you know, I didn't do too well. But if you're a student, you are set apart to study your degree, your subject, for whatever goal it is. I, I thought of Jamie, who finished his master's in theology on Sunday. At what time, Jamie? Midnight, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., closer to 3. That probably means 5 a.m., he submitted his final assignment after five years of working to get a master's in theology. 
he set himself apart to study that because he wanted to know scriptures better. He wanted to have a master's degree in theology. He wanted to learn and be shaped by that experience. But choosing to do that meant he needed to spend some times like that working through the night or on Zoom calls with lecturers in the evenings or going up to Joburg and paying the price of those flights and accommodation and all of that so that he could be lectured. And it meant that Lise and the kids sometimes didn't have access to him because on Saturdays he was studying or at night he was studying. And some of you are doing that even now. You know you've got three, four, five years ahead of you of studying because you're setting yourself apart to that information, to that degree, to that uh, career path, whatever it is, you are set apart. Whatever it costs, whatever time it takes up, whatever effort and energy it is, you're giving yourself to that thing because this is who you wanna be. This is what you wanna study. This is the direction you're heading in. What about marriage? I think I've spoken a few times over the last couple of months about how the, the covenantal vows from, it's actually the, um, the Book of Common Prayer from the Anglican Church, speaking about for richer or poorer in sickness and health till death do us part, just the beautiful language of being set apart. And then there's that phrase that I've mentioned before that speaks about forsaking all others. When you get married, you set yourself apart to one partner and you set yourself apart from everyone else. Even if down the line you bump into someone richer, more successful, more cool, more funny, someone more compatible, someone whatever, you've set yourself aside from them and set yourself apart to your partner. That is the radical edge of marriage. And as we look at all of those things, there's a why behind the choosing to be set apart. Those athletes set themselves apart from everything to compete at that level and win. The students, well, the students who don't goof around, the students who are serious about what they're doing, they set themselves apart from everything else so that they can get that degree, get that job, learn what they need to learn. When someone gets married, they set themselves apart from every other person, half of the world's population, to choose one person alone. And for Christians, we set ourselves apart to God and His purposes because we've met Him and we've fallen in love with Him and we've seen how beautiful and worthy He is and we give our entire lives to Him. That's what setting apart means. Holiness is less about what we do and it's more about why we do it. Holiness is less about doing the right thing and more about doing what we do for God. Holiness is less about living a strict, moral, boring life and more about a devoted life where we are seeking to be present to God and full of God and set apart to God in everything from brushing our teeth and eating our toast and being in the shower to being here on a Sunday, worshiping and praying and learning and enjoying being together to the stresses of money and deadlines and pressures of work or the challenging dynamics you might face in your family or family events, to those times where you go for a run or a cycle on the beachfront and just enjoy the beauty of Durban. Holiness is about a whole life set apart and centered on him. This is a quote from J.R. Packer, who's a great Anglican theologian about holiness. He says, the holiest Christians are not those most concerned about holiness as such, but those whose minds and hearts and goals and purposes and love and hope are most fully focused on our Lord Jesus Christ. I love where he lands. Are most fully focused on our Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness is about focus. So what are you focused on? What has got your attention right now?
Let's get practical with this for a little bit. What does it look like to do this? How do we live a holy life? If you're sitting there saying, sign me up, I've bought in, I wanna live a life devoted to God, I wanna seek him, pursue him, love him, give my life to him, what does it mean? I think Romans 12, verse one to two are two of the most helpful verses in terms of how we do this. And they say this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think this passage helps us a lot to know what holiness is about and how to practice a life set apart to God. So firstly, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, you can know that God is merciful, but are you living in view of his mercy? I uh, turned 36 this week. You'd never know. I mean, baby face, could be 21, just so good looking, stunning. Uh, but I turned 36 on Friday, and Shell knows that words are my love language. So one of the things over the years, we've been married 10 years in May, is she's written me cards and worked on writing cards that kind of get me in the feels, you know? So this was a particularly good card, really thoughtful, really kind, really generous with her words, and I felt really loved. I, I felt in view of Shell's love. And that changed how I felt about myself, about her, about our relationship, how I went into the day. It was really profound experiencing her love through that card. Now the reality is I know Michelle loves me, you know? I think most days she would tell me that she loves me at least once, I'm sure nearly every day. And I know she loves me, but I'm sure some of you have found this. You can say, oh, I love you, and it becomes meaningless. You know, it's, it's just something you say, like hi or bye, rather than the impact of the truth of those words coming into your heart or your mind. As I read that card, I went into the day in view of Michelle's love, and it changed me. Even now, I feel super grateful a few days later for those words and touched by her love and her thoughtfulness. And as Christians, we're called to live in view of God's mercy. Yes, we can know God is merciful. We can know God is gracious. But we can know it without living in view of it. Paul in Romans 12 says, the way we start this holiness is by living in view, having a fresh understanding, a fresh insight, a fresh living in light of his mercy in our daily lives. His love, his character, his sacrifice, his commitment to us. When that is fresh and real inside of our hearts and minds, we live differently and we live with a gratefulness and a worship inside of us that actually fills us with joy. This holiness thing doesn't become a chore, it becomes a joy because it's in view of his mercy that I'm living out his ways and living set apart to him. Here's a secret to the spiritual life. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. As J.R. Packer spoke about, what are you focused on? The thing that you're beholding will shape who you become. So what are you beholding, Harbor City? Is it Jesus? Are you living in light of him and his mercy? Or is it something else? Secondly, Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in that day, people understood sacrifice. They understood the Jewish sacrificial system, 
the pagan members of the church who'd become Christians, they understood pagan sacrifice. Probably for a lot of us, we haven't been in a situation where we've seen an animal sacrificed or maybe even watched an animal die. I was at a wedding of a couple in this church. They're here tonight, but I won't point them out or anything like that. And it was beautiful, incredible reception. And we're in this incredibly green garden just celebrating and then in come the goats. And I'm like, oh boy, here it goes. You know, feeling very white in that moment because I haven't been part of this before. I go over to watch these goats not not be sacrificed as an act of worship, but be prepared for our meal. And I went over and I was watching. I may have even taken a photo or two. And one of the guys who was part of that came up to me and I think he was really concerned. He told me he was concerned that I was gonna call the SBCA or was really cross with what was going on. So he just came to say, hey man, this is part of our culture and this is something we're used to. Don't worry, this is okay. But I was watching something that I, I wasn't really familiar with. And as we read about this, offer your body as a living sacrifice. It is talking about death as an act of worship to God, giving up everything to bring Him glory. So if you don't know what living a life as a living sacrifice, offering your body looks like, it means to be set apart. It means to give yourself over to God for our whole life to be offered up to Him as one continual act of worship. This is holy living. And this is the kind of living that isn't just living, but that turns monotonous daily life into worship where our toothbrushing and car driving and grocery shopping and praying and working and showering and nappy changing and dishwashing all brings glory to God because of the posture of our hearts towards Him. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Thirdly, do not conform to the pattern of this world. It's such a profound thing. What this means is if we are set apart to God, we are also set apart from the world around us. Moses was the leader that God chose and used to lead the Israelite people out of Egypt in a place of slavery and into Canaan, into the promised land, from slavery to the promises of God. And this is what God says to him as they're making this move from Egypt to Canaan. Leviticus 18, verse one to four. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live, or follow the practices of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. You are to practice my ordinances, and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. Something I was struck by just reading that again today is there's bookends there. At the beginning and end of those commands are the words, I am the Lord your God. Because God is God, we don't live the way of Egypt. Because God is God, we don't live the way of Canaan. Because God is God, we live His ways, His teaching, His ordinance, His statues. We follow Jesus. So what is God saying here? He's saying Egypt has a different way, Canaan has a different way, and God has a different way. As you leave Egypt to go into what I've got for you, don't carry their ways and their teachings and their values and their worldview with you. And as you go into Canaan, the promised land, shiny and new, so exciting, don't take on their new customs and practices and teachings and worldview. Don't take it on. Instead, know my way, my teaching, know me, and follow me in this new place that you're going. 
Don't be shaped by the ways of the world because you belong to God. Harbor City, the world we live in is shaping us. The city is shaping us. The internet is shaping us. The family you grew up in shaped you. The place that you work is shaping you. Being a Durbanite is shaping us in certain ways. And it means because of all of those things, we see things differently, we act differently, we prioritize differently. It's true for all of us. And part of following Jesus means that we need to be aware of that truth. The world around us is shaping us and we're not called to follow the way of Egypt or Canaan, but the way of our God. We're all people of our time and place. And what that means is you and I, sadly, even though we don't think it, are more shaped by the world around us than we'd like to admit. Even though we all think, oh, we're living biblical lives, we're following God and obeying God, there's probably more of the world that is in our hearts and our minds and our lives and our decisions than any of us would care to admit. We are shaped, some of us maybe even saturated by the world that we live in. But Jesus is calling us to follow him and know his word and follow his teachings and to let the words of God deconstruct some of the things that we believe and the ways we see and the values that we hold on to so tightly. So if we belong to him, what does it look like for us to be set apart to him here in Durban right now? Lastly, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I can't say it better than this quote. So this is the way Charles Stanley explained that. Renewing the mind is a little like refinishing furniture. I know some of you in this room have done that before. It's a two-stage process that involves taking off the old and replacing it with the new. The old is the lies you have learned to tell or were taught by those around you. It is the attitudes and ideas that have become a part of your thinking, but do not reflect reality. The new is the truth. To renew your mind is to involve yourself in the process of allowing God to bring to the surface the lies you have mistakenly accepted and replace them with truth. To the degree that you do this, your behavior will be transformed. Whenever any of us come to any topic, we bring baggage with us to that. It could be good baggage, it could be bad baggage, but we bring baggage. And one of the things that we're learning to do as we follow Jesus is to not see things through the lenses of culture or our own experience, but more and more to put on the lenses of scripture to see the different topics and themes and ideas that make up our lives. How do I handle money? How do I handle my body and my sexuality? How do I use my spare time and my energy? How do I treat my spouse and do marriage? Or how do I live as a single person? How do I vote? What should I believe? What should I desire? I'm sure there's other things that come to your minds as I share all of that. We're taking off the lenses of culture and putting on the lenses of scripture to obey and follow God and live a set apart life. So what beliefs do you need to take off to be set apart to God? And what do you need to put on? Not just to be right, not just so that we can know the truth, but so that we can be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus and be set apart to God. I'll end with this version of Romans 12, verse one and two. This is the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson uses in the message. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. 
embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. You know what strikes me about that translation? Fix your attention on God. Fix your attention on God. Growing in holiness is less about being introspective and going home and saying, got to get the flashlight out, look inside my soul, look inside my heart and mind, see any sin and chokos in there and deal with them radically. You've got to fight sin, got to kill sin, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It's less about being more disciplined and it's more about learning to follow God and be aware of Him and be captured by His beauty and worth. Holiness is a life focused on God and walking with God. Can I ask you to stand with me? Let's, let's pray.